Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you so, so much, Virginia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Caring for Your Loved One with Cancer. This is a very important workshop because we know how very important caregivers are um, for the well-being of patients and also um, in terms of what the, their own rewards are and challenges in being a caregiver. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have over 250 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Bermuda, Canada, China, Egypt, Lithuania, Nepal, Pakistan, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Elaine Shum. And Dr. Shum is Assistant Professor, Hematology and Medical Oncology, Laura and Isaac Perlmutter Cancer Center, NYU Langone Health. And Dr. Shum will be addressing the important role of the caregiver in communicating with the healthcare team and in decision-making and care coordination challenges and tips for the caregiver. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shum. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for that introduction. And thank you again for having me here. So what is a caregiver? Many of you on the call likely are caregivers and maybe partners, family members, or close friends. It's a role that many of you took on, and just like many patients who are faced for the first time with a cancer diagnosis, you feel unprepared or untrained to serve that role for your loved one. And that's okay. And we're here today to, help, to try to help you as caregivers navigate in that role. Important things to remember is just how important caregivers are and how much influence you can have. As a physician, I understand how large of a role the caregiver is. While I may see my patients in the clinic for a set time at their appointments, Caregivers are often present at home at all times or just a phone call away. They can be the first people who the patient reaches out to with their fears, concerns, or even to report a side effect to treatment or the cancer itself. You may be there to help distribute medications at home and are the support system for the patient. And you may play a role in coordinating care, perhaps several appointments, testing, imaging, and also helping with paperwork. I wanted to review some ways and tips that a caregiver can be involved with the patient and the healthcare team, many of which I know will be elaborated by the other speakers today. The first thing is that if possible, before meeting with the healthcare team, ask the patient, your loved one, what they are comfortable with in terms of your involvement. Some will want you to help make decisions with them, some may not. Some may want you to help speak for them at visits, and others may not. Encourage them to share their feelings with you and what they are comfortable with sharing with the healthcare team, and if you're allowed to do so for them if needed. Sometimes it can be difficult not to want to, to want, not want to speak up, but doing your best to respect the patient's wishes also is important for your relationship. Two, accompanying or listening over speakerphone at the visits. 
uh, feel free to ask questions and take notes, again, if the patient um, is comfortable with you doing that. You know, sometimes all the information at the visits can be overwhelming for the patient to hear, and it helps to have another set of ears to take in the information and can fill them in or remind the patient later about what was discussed. Three, knowing the healthcare team and their contact information. As many of us know, health systems can be overwhelming, and with comprehensive care now available, many people other than physicians, advanced practice providers, such as NPs and nurses, may be involved, such as social workers, supportive oncology physicians, and others. So knowing the contact info for each of the members of the care team can be helpful if a question or concern arises. Number four, providing info on what's going on at home helps to provide context for objective data that may arise in the clinic. Again, if the patient allows you to speak on their half at the visit, uh, reporting some of the side effects that you notice can be helpful, as sometimes the patient themselves may not realize that they are experiencing it, they don't remember that they experienced it, or sometimes they don't think it was worth reporting to someone. But as a physician, I can tell you how important it is for caregivers sometimes to chime in. Number five, care coordination. It's not easy. In some ways, it may feel like you're a personal assistant. I think being as prepared as possible will try to decrease stress later keeping a date book or a calendar to balance appointments, and um, again, knowing the contact information for the care team can be helpful. Also preparing for the visits beforehand can be helpful. Speak with your loved one in advance of the appointment to review what are the important things uh, they want addressed at the visit. Number five, being an advocate. You likely know that this patient and person very well. You may be aware of how they might want to deal with something based on prior experiences but maybe not. If you're comfortable to discuss privately with them about their feelings that they may not want to share directly with the healthcare team, then your role in these visits can really help to tailor recommendations for them. Number five, uh, six, healthcare proxy. Depending on your relationship with the patient, they may want to designate you as a healthcare proxy. This is someone that if they are unable to make the decision for themselves, uh, they can write on a specific healthcare proxy form about who they would want to make those decisions for them. I think it's helpful to have this sorted out on paper in case there does arise a situation where the patient can't speak and make a decision for themselves. It takes away the uncertainty of what decisions need to be made and by whom. Again, taking on that responsibility, of course, um, is best if you discuss potential hypothetical scenarios with them um, and how they might want this to be dealt with again, if they're unable to make that decision um, for themselves at that moment. But lastly, and most importantly, taking care of yourself. It's a lot, and the concept of caregiver burden is a real thing and should not be ignored. Uh, due to the disease, due to the treatments, and due to side effects, sometimes your loved one may not be acting like the person you've known all your life, and it can be difficult to be there for someone in those moments. Sometimes they might act out, they might be angry about their diagnosis, and they might take it out on you. And so that could be really, really difficult for caregivers um, to still be there to support them uh, through this journey. But the most important thing is that you can't care for someone else if you yourself are not in the right mind. That's mentally, emotionally, or physically. It's really easy to get caught up in someone else's care, but if you need a moment space to think and space to digest and deal with what's going on with your loved one, you should. You shouldn't feel guilty about trying to take some time for yourself um, in order to make sure that you can handle what's going on. And again, there are many resources and support uh, systems and um, support groups that are available for caregivers that I know some of the other speakers uh, will touch upon. 
So I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to turn it back to Carolyn. I look forward to your questions later. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shum. That was really outstanding and, and really set the tone for today's program. Um, really uh, just an outstanding presentation. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker. Our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe, Dr. Guadalupe Palos. Palos. And Dr. Palos is a doctor of public health, a master's in social work and an RN, and she is former clinical protocol administration manager, Office of Cancer Survivorship, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, author and researcher in healthcare disparities, caregiving, and survivorship. And Dr. Palos will be addressing the definition of a caregiver, what research tells us about caregivers' well-being, stresses on family, partners, friends, and loved ones, including coping with holidays, birthdays, and special occasions, practical tips for managing caregivers' stress, and strategies for self-care. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a distinct honor and pleasure to be a part of the faculty and to spend some time with you, the members of the audience. I'd like to open my discussion with the question, who is a caregiver? Dr. Shum gave a definition of a caregiver, and I'd like to just elaborate a bit on that. The term caregiver often causes confusion to patients and family members. They, they, people think you're talking about their primary physician, their uh, primary health care uh, provider. And so today, though, we are focusing on family caregivers and not on our health care providers in clinics, hospitals, and other types of settings. I have a pretty straightforward definition of a caregiver. It's a person who provides unpaid care to someone in need. This leads to another question. What type of person can be a caregiver? Well, you don't have to have any type of special degree to be a caregiver. Uh, many of you have been thrown into this role without any type of, well, it was just a surprise, no preparation whatsoever. Caregivers represent a broad section of the population. People from every background and every corner of the nation are family caregivers. People can assume family caregiver responsibilities at any stage of life. Um, I've, I've worked with, unfortunately, children who have had to be the uh, caregivers at times, adolescents, um, all, all across the, the age spectrum. Being a caregiver involves different roles, age groups, income levels, and locations. Before we go any further, I'd like to share a few facts with our audience. According to the Institute of Medicine report, which came out in 2009, but is still very important, family members, friends, and other unpaid caregivers are the backbone for much of the care provided to cancer patients in the United States. So caregivers are critical to delivering long-term care for patients and loved ones. Yet the role of caregivers is often unappreciated, and many family members support the patients at a high cost to their physical, emotional, and financial well-being. So there's been a, a variety of factors contributing to the rapid increase in the number of caregivers recently. The growing population of older adults and people with disabilities, including those with, with COVID, the longstanding now shortage of direct care workers, and the other societal issues that create tremendous changes in the concept of families. 
the current U.S. system of long-term services and support could not continue to function without the contribution of y'all, the family caregivers. Today's family caregivers are often expected to perform highly complex tasks, including medical tasks, care coordination, administration, and technology. Some of these activities extend well beyond the help of what we normally thought a caregiver could do, activities of daily living. Caregivers often have multiple roles during their experience. They have, for example, full-time physicians, they're a mom, they're a dad, um, uh, the head of household, single head of household, et cetera. An abundance of research notes that family caregivers experience significant stress in providing care to patients with illness such as the cancer, mental health illness, Parkinson's, uh, dementia, and often a combination of all of these conditions. The patient can have cancer, but they also may have all of these other conditions. So family caregivers often feel unprepared to provide care. They often have inadequate preparation to deliver the proper care, and they receive little guidance from more formal healthcare providers. The combination of these responsibilities, roles, and feelings of unpreparedness lead to significant distress in the caregiver and the families. Research also shows that caregivers often ignore their health. They uh, report poor to fair health, and they include uh, the factors that contribute to this would include things like not going to the doctor as often as they should, skipping doctor's appointments for themselves, having poor eating or exercise habits. But so despite these facts, though, our healthcare system often overlooks caregiver roles and needs, which can have a long-lasting and long-term effects for both patients and caregivers. A growing body of research focuses on outcomes called caregiver burden, and you heard Dr. Shum mention this. This outcome can be defined as, as a multifaceted strain perceived by the caregiver from caring for a family member and loved one over time. Caregiver burden can lead to poor and physical and mental health in both the caregiver and the patient. Responsibilities and stressful experience related to the caregiver role can lead to sadness, depression, anxiety, worry, and loneliness. And similarly, then, all of these things combined with the, uh, the emotional distress can also then result in physical problems such as lack of sleep, uh, fatigue, uh, and other unhealthy behaviors. So fortunately, research has also described positive aspects of caregiving. A uh, recent national opinion uh, survey found that 80% of caregivers view caregiving as a positive experience. Many caregivers report positive caregiving experiences, including giving back to someone who has cared for them or experiencing personal growth and increased meaning and purpose. Some caregivers have even reported uh, that they get great satisfaction, that it strengthens their family relationships, and that then contributes to their own quality of life. Despite the high rates of symptom burdens, caregivers also demonstrate optimism, resilience, and a positive outlook in the face of cancer. These traits have been shown to correlate with increased life satisfaction, positive health perception, and decreased anxiety and depression. However, special occasions and other significant milestones can raise our awareness of the challenges associated with these moments. So I'd like to share a few strategies that may help be helped during your family and friends celebrations. These strategies may help you plan effectively, be proactive, and be prepared. 
Let's then begin by discussing ways to manage the chaos associated with particular times. One helpful strategy is to develop a special preparedness plan. This plan could be like a hurricane preparedness plan, and it would map out how to prepare for those special events and who would be responsible for what. It would also give, allow the, tra- the caregiver to make some trade-offs in their roles when caring for a loved one during special times, especially when they are far away from our caregiver. And one of our speakers is going to, uh, to talk about that in a bit. So here are some things you might want to include or think about when you're doing your plan. Determine what realistically can be done. Create a stable and realistic role. Create new, dis- new traditions for your special occasions. Instead of large group gatherings, consider holding smaller group gatherings. These gatherings can decrease the caregiver's stress, of course, the care, uh, and the patient's stress, and also give everyone more time and space to spend with family uh, and friends. If your loved one is restricted to one area, make that area the focal point of the celebration so they may feel more included. For example, if they're in their room, you can do some festivities there in their room if if the space is there. If your home is a gathering place for all celebrations, ask others to host the events. For example, the next generation can host the event and divide the responsibilities such as planning the menu, preparing the food, and even cleaning up. You may even wish to have a period of storytelling, telling about the, talking about the good old times. This is a great way to include children, adolescents, and adults, because everyone has a treasured memory of holidays, birthdays, and births. In the last few moments, I'd like to focus on caregivers' self-care. Here's a question for our caregivers on the, on the line. How many caregivers take the time to practice self-care? It is critical that caregivers, families, and friends keep tabs on their own physical and emotional health when supporting someone that is going through the cancer experience. A caregiver can experience anger, frustration, anxiety, or sadness, which can fluctuate depending on the status of your loved one throughout their experience. A word of caution, caregiver burden occurs when you are in a state of distress or stress for a long period of time. The combination of these, again, can lead to larger health problems. And remember, if you're healthy, your patient will be cared for. If you're unhealthy, there will be some things that um, you won't be able to do for your patients. Remember, it is critical to give yourself permission to grieve, cry, and express your feelings. And you may even want to begin or at least try uh, or continue meditation, yoga, music, Deep breathing is wonderful. Journaling, you don't have to do anything fancy. Just jot a couple of thoughts down on a piece of paper and joining a support group. And there's numerous resources available for support groups in person or online. Even the Veterans Administration uh, has programs for veterans and their families um, for caregiving. Take time for yourself. Take a quick walk around your home or neighborhood. Cuddle with your pet. Look at family photos, find an activity which you can enjoy even for a few moments. And when needed, seek professional help from services like those my colleagues will discuss in in their sessions. My colleagues and I look forward to hearing from you and the suggestions you may have for caregivers and, and those they care for. And perhaps some of our listeners will share tips on being a caregiver. After all, you are living the experience. You are the experts. Thank you for allowing me to share these thoughts, Dr. With all of you, Dr. Messner, this concludes my remarks.
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Paulus. And I think that's a great idea that during the Q&A, you also, please, um, all of the caregivers on the call, you can also share tips that would help, that you found helpful to help others. So I, I think that's a great recommendation. And we'll be sure to include that when we move on to the Q&A. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was a really wonderful presentation, um, full of lots of wonderful information. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Ms. Nina Kapoon Hinsman. And Ms. Hinsman um, is a master in nursing and an um, a, um, advanced practice provider manager nurse, advanced practice nurse. And her title is a supportive care nurse practitioner, advanced practice provider manager, supportive care, geriatric oncology, and integrative medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Ms. Kapoor Hinsman will be addressing the important role of the long-distance caregiver, caregiving for an older adult, adherence, setting up a plan to take medications and keep follow-up appointments for cancer and other health conditions, and healthcare proxy and power of attorney. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Nina Kapoor Hinsman. Thank you, Dr. Messer. I'm so happy to be here with all of you speaking about these important topics today. So I'll dive right in with the role of the long-distance caregiver. Um, the National Institute of Health defines a long-distance caregiver as someone who lives an hour or more away from a loved one. But despite that distance, there are many ways to help. So how can you help? Um, there are tasks that uh, involve a lot of coordination and it can be very helpful for a long-distance caregiver to take these tasks away from the patient or the local caregiver. These can include helping to organize finances, uh, for example, ensuring bills are paid on time, et cetera. Um, the long-distance caregiver can also have the home environment evaluated for safety, ensuring that all durable medical equipment that might be necessary is available in the home and that um, uh, patients are accompanied by um, uh, companions for their safety. The long-distance caregiver can also provide emotional support for their loved one and respite for the daily caregiver. Very importantly, the long-distance caregiver can serve as an information coordinator between healthcare providers, insurances, and other family members. And this is a uh, very um, uh, hefty role that is uh, helpful to uh, take on and a very important role helpful to take on uh, by the long-distance caregiver. So some tips if you're a long-distance caregiver. Learn about your loved one's health, their treatments, and available caregiving resources locally. This will help you to understand what is going on, anticipate their course of illness, prevent crises, and assist in their healthcare management. Organize important paperwork in one place and provide copies to other caregivers. This can include up-to-date healthcare documents, wills, and financial information. Make sure at least one caregiver has written permission to receive medical and financial information. And to the extent possible, one person should handle conversations with all healthcare providers for continuity. Plan your visits to your loved one. Find out in advance what that person and the primary caregiver would like to do and also what they may need help with. 
plan simple and relaxing activities that will help to build memories. Stay connected. Schedule calls with healthcare providers to discuss your loved one's well-being and update family members on the loved one's condition. And finally, consider caregiver training. Local chapters of the American Red Cross and other nonprofit organizations may offer caregiving courses. Medicare and Medicaid sometimes cover the cost of training, so that's helpful to look into. Now I'm going to turn to caregiving for the older adults. There are many positive aspects for caregiving in this population, including a sense of fulfillment for both the patient and the caregiver, establishment of extended social networks, and most importantly, learning more about yourself, your loved one, and enhancing the meaning in both of your lives. As the number of older Americans increases, so will the number of caregivers needed to provide care. However, we know as the elderly population becomes a larger portion of the population, we expect that there will be less potential caregivers for individual older adults. What are some tips for caring for an older adult? If you are the caregiver for an older adult, as Dr. Paulus mentioned, caring for yourself first is key and it ensures your ability to effectively care for your loved one. Informal caregiving has been associated with depression and anxiety and worse self-reported physical health. Caregivers indicate that a decline in their health compromises their ability to care for loved ones. Caregiving may also contribute to financial strain, like missing work for medical appointments and or the cost of other medical expenses. It is important to plan for this and engage with your healthcare and social work teams to identify resources and or tailor the health plan to help meet your needs. Establish and maintain a care plan. This will be an invaluable tool that saves time and optimizes care for your loved ones. This should include health conditions, medications, healthcare providers, emergency contacts, and caregiver resources. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, also known as the CDC, has a caregiving care plan template on their website that you can fill in directly and print out. Ensure adherence with prescribed medications. This is important to optimize the health of your loved one. Non-adherence is less often about individual choice in the elderly and more often related to specific barriers, which can include high medication costs, lower literacy levels, poor communication, leading to misinterpretation of medication instructions and or the purpose of the medication, unpleasant side effects, poor vision, decreased fine motor coordination. For example, a loved one can't open the pill bottle. It is essential to ask for and identify any barriers that, um, and advocate for solutions with your healthcare team. Pre-filling a pill box at the beginning of the week can help to simplify and support adherence to complex medication regimens, as well as reduce medication errors. Consider using a pill box that has slots for multiple times per day and seven days per week. Finally, adherence to follow-up medical appointments for cancer as well as other health conditions is crucial. Active follow-up supports better tolerance of treatments, improved function, improved health outcomes, and improved quality of life. Often, a cancer diagnosis can overshadow the importance of other health conditions. Lack of attention to those health conditions, however, can lead to avoidable complications. It is imperative to maintain a primary health care provider, as well as follow up with other specialists 
to ensure that a patient's health can be optimized. This will allow them to live each day as well as possible. And lastly, I'll talk with you about two uh, documents uh, that are considered advanced care directives. Um, the first, the power of attorney, and then a special kind of power of attorney called the healthcare proxy, which was also talked about a little bit um, uh, uh, by Dr. Schlum. What is a power of attorney? This is a legal document giving one person called the agent or attorney in fact, the power to act for another person known as the principal. Authority can be broad or limited. Durable power of attorney takes place once the document is signed and stays in effect even if the principal becomes uh, incapacitated. A different type of power of attorney known as a springing power of attorney only comes into effect if and when the principal becomes incapacitated. A power of attorney is, utilized for, is usually utilized for financial matters, but can also apply to medical matters only, allowing the agent to make crucial decisions on behalf of an incapacitated person. We refer to this as this healthcare power of attorney, also known as the healthcare proxy. This document gives the appointed agent legal authority to oversee medical care decisions on behalf of the principal. You can establish a healthcare proxy or power of attorney by downloading the correct form from your state. A healthcare proxy does not need to be notarized. It only requires the signature of the principal and two witnesses. A power of attorney may be required to have the principal's and or witnesses' signature notarized. This varies state to state, and it can be helpful to have an attorney establish this for you. If there are financial concerns, you can search the Get Legal Help function of the Legal Services Corporation website. If you qualify, you can have attorney services free of charge. It is important to know that although power of attorney and healthcare proxy grant certain decision-making abilities to appointed agents, on behalf of the principal, they aren't absolute. A principal can terminate or change their agent and their decision-making rights cease upon the principal's death. Thank you, Dr. Messner. I'll turn back to you for the next speaker. Oh, thank you so much, um, Dr. Um, Kapoor-Hensman. That was outstanding. Just really a lot of wonderful information that we, um, that caregivers really need to know and be aware of, and I think um, you really brought home a lot of important points, and I know during the Q&A there will be a lot of questions for you as well. So thank you. Thank you so much. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. And uh, Dr. Fleischman is a former founding director of Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, now part of the Mount Sinai Health System. He's an author and researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman will be addressing caregiving for young adults, Challenges of caregivers for cancer survivors, couples, partners, siblings, and friends. Guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology. Prepared list of questions and discussion of open notes. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you, everybody, for joining the call today. There's a lot of useful information here. Um, Dr. Messner asked me to speak about the care of young adults, so we're taking that for um, late teenagers and early, um, early adulthood, uh, probably into middle age. And care of young adults is a little bit different than uh, what we 
see in older, middle-aged or older adults. Um, younger adults are, especially on the younger end, in the late teens and, and 20s, are often still establishing who they are and their autonomy, especially if they've uh, been in a school and have been dependent upon parents for a long period of time. Even now, in the United States, healthcare coverage continues to 26, which fosters a kind of dependency on, on our parents uh, later than it used to. And young adults um, really want to be part of the decision-making, and that is often true in the uh, younger end of the spectrum, where um, it's important that parents include the young person in the uh, decision-making process. Um, the um, experiences of young adults can be kind of different going through care because as we all remember of our late teenage and early adult years, sometimes um, our priorities are different than they are as an older adult. We focus on the moment rather than on the future. And that's all um, really changed when somebody is being treated for cancer. Um, interfering with uh, our social network, dating life, uh, looking for a job, finishing school, um, establishing ourselves in the world, all can interfere uh, with how the individual perceives their situation and the need for ongoing cancer treatment and even ongoing follow-up. In survivor's clinics of um, young adults who've been treated for cancer and are seen later in life. Many times in the 30s, many of those patients stop attending their appointments because they're tired of the cancer world and they may believe, like we all do at some point, that we're invincible and it's not necessary. Um, and uh, it's a challenging group of people to work with, as long as, but as long as you focus on what are the issues of any person that age, and then really look at those and how the cancer affects those um, milestones and how those milestones affect both the, can the, the cancer treatment and the adjustments to cancer treatment will put you in the right spot to really understand um, what's going on and how you can help. Treatment of survivors is also complex. Uh, many cancer survivors um, may have some physical limitations as a result of their cancer or their treatment, but they certainly have lots of memories of what it was like to find out that they had cancer and uh, gone through the diagnostic testing and then the various modalities of treatment and what it was like. And that may, may affect how they are a caregiver for someone else with cancer. In a small minority of people, we uh, see that uh, some uh, survivors really are very angry about what happened to them and have very distinct opinions about what should and shouldn't be done for their relative or friends who they're, for whom they're providing care. And that may be out of uh, a number of different um, uh, slights that they have felt earlier in the, in the process. We have to be respectful of that. And the same thing could happen um, if, we're caring for siblings or for parents or uh, for friends, all who have had, um, if we have had a, 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 um, a cancer illness and treatment in the past or they have, that is going to change really how everybody perceives what's going on, the experience of going through it. And we have to be extremely respectful of those uh, past experiences because it really brings a dimension to care that can both be very helpful 
or uh, interfere with care. And as providers and caregivers, we need to understand that. Um, it's a, a complex issue, and it really depends upon the past experiences of the, both the caregiver and the patient that we are dealing with. Caring for a spouse obviously brings in many other issues of um, uh, of uh, having the the relation, the romantic relationship, and the strong social relationship, both being a help and sometimes a hindrance because um, when we've looked at quality of life issues in the past when a patient had to identify um, degrees of quality of life as a result of cancer treatment and then we asked spouses, spouses or, or, or family members often overestimate more of a incursion on quality of life than the individual patient him or herself. So we just need to be aware that's natural when you're watching someone who you love um, be uh, worried and going through treatment over a, a long period of time. So we just have to be mindful of all that too. The other um, issue that I wanted to bring up was the new frontier that all of us as patients and providers are um, are, are in now. It's probably our fourth year or so of uh, dealing with telehealth on a much grander scale than anybody has in the past. Uh, we may find that some of these appointments are very helpful. Uh, there are some limitations on them. Uh, the ability for us to do, to, to do a physical exam for certain things is close to impossible on telehealth. Um, and, but a lot can be done, uh, and uh, we also have seen that there are many advantages. If you are a caregiver in a different uh, part of the city or state or a different part of the country or even another country, as long as you have the patient's permission uh, and you have access to an Internet uh, connection or a telephone line, often you can be part of the process instead of having to travel sometimes thousands of miles in order to be at a, at a provider's appointment. So that, that can also be very helpful. We've also seen over the last four years that a number of services that are what we call low touch, um, that are extremely important for uh, getting through cancer treatment, uh, genetic um, assessment and counseling, uh, nutri uh, nutritional counseling. Um, many rehab uh, functions can actually be done online with a camera and, and, and a microphone, and it can be very helpful. So we're learning how to sort of leverage this new world of electronics uh, into the in, into the uh, life of the providers and the patients and the families, and um, hopefully we're going to uh, leave the pandemic era and when we get to the, the era of COVID as a, just one of those things we have to deal with every year, kind of like influenza, um, that we, we leave with some good habits and some good experiences that can help us change care for the better. If you're going to be doing a telehealth appointment, there are certain things, certain practical things you just need to keep in mind. Um, you need to ha know how you're connecting, if it's through a telephone or through a computer, if it's going to be an audio-only telehealth visit or there'll be a video and auditory capabilities. If so, please make sure that you connect with someone in the provider's office the day before. They should be connecting with you in some way to, to tell you how to sign on. Um, and if you need anything special on your telephone, any um, 
any applications or, or on your computer that need to be loaded in advance. Some offices will actually do a dry run so that the provider can stay on schedule and not have everybody late for the subsequent visits. Make sure the device is charged. Make sure you're in a quiet place. As we recommend for in-person visits as well, think through what's most important to you from that visit and make a list. And this is where a, um, a, a trusted relative or friend, even if they're in a different city, state, or country, can really help you formulate those questions in advance. So by the end of the um, call, uh, you can have those questions answered. Um, during the connection, again, a quiet place uh, it can be very helpful. Lighting can also be uh, an issue, especially if uh, some part of a physical, if you just need to show uh, something on your arm or uh, you know, something that can be done with a visual inspection as part of a physical exam, lighting can be an issue as well. Uh, this is new to all of us. Uh, we have gotten a lot of experience over the past four years, and uh, we continue that, we'll all get better at it. And, it's a, and it is an adjustment for everybody. Another important thing that's happened um, that affects caregivers and patients alike um, are the access to electronic medical records. This is not 100% penetrance in all over the country. Some providers are still using paper charts and to the old system where they will write or type notes in a chart that they keep in their offices. Um, if it, if you're seeing a provider that's part of generally one of the larger health systems or is in a pretty progressive uh, private community-based practice, they will be using an electronic record where all your information, all of the results of your blood tests and your scans and their notes go into an electronic system which you can uh, access at least in part. That is really good and problematic for uh, many of us, both providers and patients. Uh, because of the privacy and confidentiality laws uh, connected to electronic medical records, often patients and families can bring up the reports even before they're seen by the provider, or they've been seen by the provider, but the provider's office hasn't had a chance to call up to discuss the uh, results. Um, I remember, you know, how hard it was as a beginning medical student to read all these reports and understand the context. And uh, I can't imagine how difficult it is because they've gotten a lot more complicated over the years for an untrained patient or untrained caregiver to be able to uh, evaluate the information in these reports in a very sound way. Please, be, please remember that during cancer treatment, a number of the results are supposed to be abnormal. <laughs> uh, and if they are, that's good. And if they're not, that could be a problem, which is why reviewing these with someone from, from your provider's office, certainly not always the provider herself or himself, but part of any one of the staff who's trained to do so is extraordinarily helpful. Also, um, it, reading results of scans can be extremely confusing. Things that are supposed to be there are not something bad, they're good. Um, and uh, as um, many of us in medical and nursing and allied fields say about the legal field, it's not what we read that, that we don't understand, it's what's, what's left out. And it's the same thing with reading medical records. So sometimes the thing that's left out may be um, 
because it's okay um, and it's not forgotten. So please review these reports with the provider or someone from the provider's office so you can get the proper um, understanding of what it means in the context of your illness at that point in your treatment and that your um, your caregiver is also included in that conversation so he or she can understand. So uh, I'm going to stop now. Complicated concepts of the human condition during cancer and the technology that we've all grown to uh, learn to use um, over a very short course of time. And I'll turn this back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really outstanding and wonderful presentation covering a lot of different topics. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And I'm Carolyn Messner. I just want to say a few words about uh, cancer care services, um, and then we're going to move um, into um, the Q&A. So be sure to, some of you already have posted your questions, but be sure to send any questions you may have to the, and our, our operator will explain to you how to do that. A cancer care offers free uh, programs and services. So what are those services? Well, many people call our Hope Line in the United States. It's an 800 number, 800-813-4673. And um, you have the opportunity to talk to an oncology social worker, express your concerns, and then they will go over with you all the services we offer. So what are they? We offer support groups. We offer online support groups. And we offer just support, a chance to talk to an oncology social worker. Um, we offer resource navigation, so if we don't have the resource, we will connect you to the resource that's out there. We offer financial, practical, and copay assistance. We offer these workshops. We have publications. And we have a very active website, www.cancercare.org, in which you can see a really host of all the services we offer. So that just gives you a, a good quick picture of the services that we offer. And they're all free, and they're all national. And now we're going to move right on to the questions and, uh, that you may have or tips you may want to provide. Um, I'm going to ask Regina if she would explain to you how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we'll take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. I have a number of questions. I don't know if you've already posted your questions, so that's always amazing. Um, so um, this is for Dr. Shum. What's the best way to encourage a family member to eat during cancer treatment when they can't eat for whatever reason? Many side effects of chemotherapy, their own depression, et cetera. Yeah, it's a very good question. And eating is, you know, something, you know, seems so basic, but definitely for someone who's experiencing side effects, um, it can be really difficult. Um, the way I try to encourage patients is to snack throughout the day. Um, you know, they don't have to take the three standard meals of breakfast, lunch, and dinner, because that can be very overwhelming, but trying to snack on, you know, high-protein things, such if they're not allergic to nuts, things like nuts, peanut butter, even a spoon of peanut butter, and just trying to snack throughout the day. Um, if there's access to a nutritionist um, at the, wherever they're getting care, you know, that sometimes can help also. Um, uh, supplementation with things like uh, protein shakes, Ensure, um, boost, uh, those types of things to sometimes replace a traditional meal, but to try to ensure that they're getting the right calories um, per day, you know, to support them. But it definitely can be very challenging. Um, you know, discussing with the physician as well, uh, sometimes things like appetite stimulants can be prescribed, but 
you know, that's a very individual basis, depends on, you know, what the patient is going through, their other medical conditions. Um, but as a caregiver, I think, you know, trying not to force them too much, you know, I'm sure if they wanted to eat, they would eat, um, but just trying to support them as much as possible. Thank you. And for Dr. Palos, I'm a physician and my wife was currently diagnosed with breast cancer. How can I separate myself from my physician identity and just be her supportive spouse during this time? That's a great question. Um, it is often difficult when you are already in that road and you're, um, you know, you've probably have been in that role for many, many years, that of being your, the physician and being you know, with patients. And when you get home, but you, you know, you can even do something active and physical, like, you know, change into your favorite sweater or something, and then just let yourself know that I'm here as my wife's um, supporter. I'm going, you know, I'm going to make her her favorite meal. I'm going to do whatever, but try to detach yourself as much as possible. What I would recommend too is, you know, when you find yourself giving advice or trying to do care in a way that's not really in your area, you can just stop and just count, even up to five, and, and that will help you then again to distract yourself. It's challenging, especially if you've been uh, a physician for many, many years or any healthcare provider for many, many years. That's just a role we naturally accept. But again, um, what your wife needs the most right now is seeing you there, not as her physician, but as the husband and the supporter and the friend that she needs during this time. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, for Ms. Um, um, Nina Kapoon Hinson, um, the question is, um, what tips do you have for being able to continue living my life outside of my role as a caregiver? So that's a wonderful question, and I think it's really um, uh, key, you know, going to taking care of yourself um, uh, so that way you can have the bandwidth to take care of your loved one. And so having some scheduled time, maybe asking uh, for help from, for others to come and take over some of your caregiving responsibilities so that way you can have time away without worry is really important. Um, it doesn't have to be a lot of time away. It could be something small that you enjoy doing, um, even just getting outside and taking a walk. Um, having that time for yourself is really important for your mental well-being and your physical well-being. Um, and it is okay to ask for help from others when you um, uh, need it. Excellent. And Dr. Fleischman, the question to you, do you have any recommendations for families whose opinions on treatment differ and to whom the ailing loved one provides differing degrees of information. Oh, difficult. Difficult, but Sounds good like a question. program, actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> di difficult, but good question. Um, all of us bring our own, you know, our own experiences to treatment, both providers and patients and caregivers, everybody. Um, if you have a, a, a strong opinion, um, the best thing to do is to to stop for a second and think, is this in the best interest of the patient? And if so, how can I communicate this 
my opinion most effectively. Do I discuss it with the patient directly, who then may be caught between two opinions? Do I try to uh, discuss it with someone on the cancer treatment team? Um, and if those don't work, Dr. Messner's offer for uh, some help uh, by cancer care would be ex an extremely good idea because having someone who's a little bit removed from the situation yet experienced uh, and a little more objective can be very helpful. Awesome. Thank you. And I'm going to ask all of our speakers to just provide a takeaway um, from today's program, something you'd like people to remember. Um, it could be just a, a sentence or two, um, just a, you know, a minute um, or less than a minute. I'm going to start with um, Dr. Shum. Yep. So I, I said it during you know my session about again, you know, just you're so important to the patient, and um, but not to forget about yourself, as many of us have discussed. Um, it, it's it's really so easy to get caught up in everything and forget about your own needs and your own care. So, you know, you yourself might feel um, sort of overwhelmed by everything, and there's you might feel like you need a caregiver. So, but um, you know, really advocating for yourself and also taking time for yourself. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Palos, um, I would say don't feel guilty about walking away, walking out of the room for a bit of time so you can, you know, recharge yourself. That's one of the things I hear the most from our caregivers. They're, they don't want to leave the room. They don't want to leave the bedside. Um, they, and if they do, they feel guilty about it. Do not feel guilty. You also are important, especially right now during this time. So please take the time to take care of yourself as so many, as all of our speakers have talked about today. Excellent, thank you, that's excellent. Um, and Ms. Nina kapoon Hinsman. Hi, thank you. So I would say be forgiving to yourself. Um, no matter what you're doing and what frustrations you may have from day to day, um, know that we all, the, the clinicians on your healthcare team um, and, and uh, providers, we all know that you are there with your loved ones through thick and thin. You're there when they're having their worst day. You're there when they're having their worst moment, and you're there to support their happiness. And so what you're doing is one of the most crucial and important parts of your loved one's health care plan. So um, whatever you do, whatever frustration you may have, know that it's okay to be in that moment, to feel that, and know that the importance of what you're doing um, transcends all of that. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Fleischman? Sure. I'll, I'll uh, support a different aspect of what we spoke about today. Make technology your friend. Um, technology can ease a caregiver burden quite a bit by not having to provide the same information to loved, loved ones, friends, relatives many times a day, a group text, a group email, um, even um, a telephone call chains, one person calls another, can be extremely helpful so that maybe you can steal a few minutes for yourself or to um, spend more time on something that's not so repetitive. Well, thank you so much. I, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been phenomenal on today's program. And I do want to remind all of you that this is a one-hour program and that um, in keeping with that, I um, want to be sure that, um, that we go over um, some of the things that are really important for all of you to, rem to remember about the program. Um, and so 
um, kind of as a concluding remarks. Um, I want to thank our speakers again. They've been extraordinary. And I want to thank all of you as participants who asked really such great questions. Although we've done this program in the past, the questions today have been even more extraordinary than in the past. So, um, and also, uh, although we did not, we were not able to get to everyone's question, I do want to remind all of you that um, if you asked a question today, if you have a question that you're in queue to ask, or you have a question that you're thinking about asking, Please, each of you, go back to your healthcare team. Remember, your healthcare team consists of both your medical oncologist, your um, your oncology nurse, oncology social worker, financial specialist, patient navigator. There's a whole team of people there. So, no matter what your concerns are, there are people there that can be of assistance to you. And so, definitely. Um, Think of your team. They know you the best, for one thing. So even if you asked a question, ask the question again of your healthcare team. Also, I would not want anyone to leave this program feeling that you're alone. I, I know it's very tempting to feel alone when you're in the middle of caregiving and you're feeling all that, the burden that we've all talked about during the program. Um, but also, um, I want you to know that you're now part of the community of support. And we are going to be sending you a survey monkey evaluation in a couple of days, but in that evaluation, there also will be all the resources that we mentioned to you, and even some that we may not have concluded, that will include both their telephone numbers, their websites, and all the information that would be useful to you as a resource. So in addition to it being an evaluation, which we always love you to fill out, we also um, want you to have that extra information. So you may have been taking notes, but you might have missed something, and we want to be sure that you have all of that information at your fingertips. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, um, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.